Well, it's great to see you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Jonathan, for giving me another opportunity to share. I always love the privilege of just teaching. Uh, what kills me is that we're going through so much scripture all week long that I wish I had four hours to teach you everything that I've learned, but I don't. I got about 18 minutes, so come on. Better get your thinking caps on. We're going to move fast, all right? So let me just start with this. There was this guy named William Borden, young man, graduated high school, 16 years old in 1904. Uh, he was living in Chicago, but he was the heir to the fortune of the Borden family. The Borden family made all their wealth through silver mining companies in Colorado, and this kid was about to inherit millions upon millions of dollars even in 1904. They would be easily equivalent to being a billionaire in this day and age. So in 1904, he graduates from high school, and as a gift for his graduation, his parents sent him on a trip around the world. Well, while he's on this trip, he encounters things he never expected to see. Extreme poverty, depravity of humankind. I mean, just all kinds of mess, sin, lives in shambles all around the world, and it breaks him. And so he writes home and he tells his parents, hey, look, I, uh, I think God's calling me to be a missionary. And of course, their response is like, no, you're the heir to the company. You're the, you're the heir to the, to the family wealth. You, you can't do that. You'll be wasting your life. But in the back of his Bible, he wrote two words that would stick with him for the rest of his life. He wrote these words, no reserves. Well, when he gets back from the trip around the world, he starts college at Yale University. And at Yale, he is just, a, just a, an amazing young man of God. He led all kinds of his fellow students to, to faith in Christ. And by the time he graduates as a senior, him and a few of his friends had started Bible studies all over that campus. And they were so powerful and so well attended that believe it or not, over 80% of the student body at Yale was attending a Bible study that William Borden had started. <laughs> and, and so you got a thousand students at Yale out of 1300 on campus that are actually involved in Bible studies that William Borden had started. It's just a pretty amazing story. And so at the end of his uh, college, years there, he graduates and he's getting all kinds of, of job offers from all these highly influential companies, good jobs, uh, lucrative jobs because of his, of his position. And he turned them all down. And upon graduation, he wrote two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves, he wrote these two words, no retreats. Well, he goes off from there to seminary, and he attended seminary at Princeton University. And after he graduates from Princeton, he feels this heavy, heavy calling in his life to go into missions, specifically into China, to minister to the Muslims. And so on his way to China, he takes a ship to Egypt, where he's going to stop for several months and really, really dive in and learn the Arabic language so he can effectively minister to the Muslims. And as soon as he gets to Egypt, he contracts spinal meningitis, and within a month, he's dead. This young man with such a high calling on his life is now gone. And the world was in shock because everybody knew of this young man because he's from such a prominent family in America. The author of his biography wrote this, a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself. And in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. So let me ask you, do you think his life was a waste? Well, prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats, he had written these two words, no regrets. 
He was just 25 years old. And yet here we are, a hundred and some odd years later, still talking about him. You think he made an impact? I think so. Well, when we talk about today, two other individuals from the Bible who were just like William Borden. His name was Ezra. Another guy's name was Nehemiah. Now, these two books fall towards the very end of the Old Testament chronologically, but they're sort of in the middle when you look at your Bible. The Bible is arranged in the Old Testament according to literary style, not chronologically. So even though some books are chronological, when you start getting into the Old Testament prophets and the major prophets and the minor prophets and the books of history, they're grouped together in terms of those instead of chronologically. So Esther and Nehemiah are actually a few of the last books ever written for the Old Testament before we hit this 400 years of silence. And then next to come, of course, is the coming of Christ, Matthew. So in order to kind of understand where we're at in history, I got a little timeline created for you. Thanks to the guys upstairs, Matt and John and company. And so you can see sort of a little timeline of where these books fall, all right? In 605 BC, as you probably remember, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar takes over uh, the city of Jerusalem, or actually comes to power, and then several years into power in 587, he takes the city of Jerusalem. And when he does, he takes lots of captives from the city of Jerusalem, and he takes the cream of the crop, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all these guys. And he raises them up in the Babylonian culture, right? And so over the course of many years, you, incurred, you, you, you run into books like Daniel and, and, and Jeremiah, the prophet, who'd warned about this captivity that was to come. And so there's about a 70-year period where the Jewish people are held captive by the Babylonians. Well, then in 539 BC, Cyrus takes over the kingdom of Babylon. And you read that very story. You remember the story of the writing on the wall in Daniel chapter five? I actually brought a message to you about that last fall. That's when it happens. And so now the Persians have taken, kept, uh, have taken control over that whole region. And so just two years in the reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia, he issues a decree allowing a remnant of the captives of Jerusalem and the people of Israel to go back to Jerusalem. And so there's three major waves throughout history where this remnant, these remaining captives from Jerusalem go back to their homeland. The first one is led by Zerubbabel there in 537. And he takes about 50,000 people back with him. And his purpose is to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. All right. And then several years later comes Ezra. Ezra is a priest and he's going to lead another 2,000 or so people back to help rebuild the city. Now, the story of Zerubbabel is Ezra chapter one through six. And then from Ezra chapter seven on, you, still, you, you read the story of Ezra the priest. Interestingly enough, there's another historical book in the Bible called Esther, Queen Esther. You're gonna hear all about that next week from Pastor Jonathan, but all of that takes place in between Ezra chapter six and Ezra chapter seven. So all of this is kind of layered on top of each other, right? Well, a contemporary of Ezra is also a guy named Nehemiah. And about 14 years after Ezra goes back to Jerusalem with about 2,000 people, now Nehemiah heads back to Jerusalem. Okay, are you following me? So here we are, we're gonna jump into Nehemiah chapter one because we're gonna focus on the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. First thing I want you to see is his brokenness. Nehemiah, after having heard all the stories of Ezra and everything that's going on before, here he is now just minding his own business and look at chapter one, verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, 
Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th years, I was in Susa, the citadel. Okay, it's late 446 BC. It's the Hebrew month of Kislev, which is somewhere between mid-November to mid-December on our calendar. It's approaching the wintertime. So King Artaxerxes, the king who uh, ne uh, Nehemiah is serving, it's, is in his winter palace. He's in Susa, which is the capital city of the Persian Empire. It's just an ordinary day when this friend of his, Hanani, appears before him and they have this little conversation. Look at verse two. Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Zerubbabel goes back, rebuilds the temple that Solomon had built years before that, that, uh, that um, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, right? So he's back there rebuilding the temple. Now Ezra has gone back. He's helping to rebuild the lives of the people because their, their lives were full of sin. There's all kinds of mess going on. You should read it in Ezra if you didn't already this week. But now Nehemiah is broken because he's hearing all this. Nehemiah's never even been to Jerusalem. He was born a captive of the Persian Empire. He's never been there. But his people, he's hearing about this. The people that he loves, his, his, uh, her, you know, his heritage. And he's broken about this story. And look at verse 4 in chapter 1. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah is sitting here in the right place at the right time. And because of one conversation, many times this can happen in our own lives, it, it changes the entire course of his life. In fact, I would encourage you before we go any further this morning to listen with your eyes. Be aware of what God is doing around you. You see, a need seen is often a task given. And if a need breaks you, if a certain injustice breaks you, or whatever you're seeing around you is breaking your heart like it did Nehemiah, then it could be that God wants to use you to accomplish something great in that area. So listen with your eyes. Be aware of what God is doing around you. Does he want to use you? In fact, let me just ask you this. Have you ever even asked God to do that? Have you ever asked God in the process of your daily busy lives, have you ever asked God if he has a vision for you? What does God want to do in your life? Let me tell you something. He has a plan and a purpose for you, but you got to seek his face and ask him what it is. Can you imagine if we all did that? Can you imagine what kind of world changers we would all be if we would completely surrender our lives to him and allow him to break us over a certain need around us? That's exactly what happened with Nehemiah. And so he prays to the Lord. He's broken about this whole thing. He wept for his people and he loved his God. This is a great book about how to love God and to love people. But you see, he's going there because Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, Ezra rebuilt the city, and yet there's no protection around it. So his specific calling is to go back and build the walls. Interestingly enough to me, God never says in this book, Nehemiah, go build the walls. I always thought that was interesting. And yet, he has this passion and this longing and this calling to do so. He's full of conviction about it. Let me ask you this. Have you let the walls of conviction in your life be torn down? Some walls are bad. They need to be torn down as far as communication, but other walls in our life need to be built up. Walls like conviction, 
where once we stood strong against a certain sin and now we've sort of weakened our stance and it doesn't seem quite as wrong as it used to. You know, our society and our culture has a very intentional way of taking what is immoral and glossing it over to make it look very acceptable and even normal. We even pass laws in favor of that so that way now we really consider it not even normal but even noble. So have you let the walls of conviction in your own life to be torn down? Hmm. Listen, I just want to encourage you, if that's you, go back to knowing what you believe and why you believe it and base those beliefs on the flawless word of God because those walls of conviction will protect your life. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 reminds us, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. Walls of conviction, walls of relationships, where once you had a strong relationship with your wife or your husband or your, or, or your kids or your parents, and suddenly it's been broken down because of negligence or unkind words or, or even abuse. Oh, folks, those are walls that we need to build up in our lives, not down. How about walls that are boundaries? You know, where you let your guard down with certain disciplines in your life, like how you spend your time or how you treat your body what you put into your body, how much you, you get your sleep. I mean, all these little things are walls that need to be built up in our lives. These are good walls. So like large doors, great life-changing events can swing on very small hinges. I like that word from Warren Wisby, and this is what happens here. This very small conversation ends up changing the course of the life of Nehemiah forever. And he's broken about it. The next thing I want you to see is the boldness of Nehemiah. The very last phrase of chapter 1, Nehemiah says these words, and I was the king's cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer for the king meant that you tasted the wine and you tasted the food before the king got it. Pretty risky little job there because if anybody wants to kill the king, most likely they're going to try to poison him. So even though you're living in a posh palace and you've got this really great job, it's a little risky because if somebody's going to poison the king, guess who dies first? You. That's right. What a blessing. But at the same time, if nobody's poisoning the king, you've got a great situation here because you have proximity to the king. You're right there by his side. And so honestly, the cupbearer's role was more important than just tasting food and wine. It was also basically the function of the chief of staff. He was the last line of defense for the king. You don't get to the king unless you go to the cupbearer. I mean, this is a very important position. And here he is in the most trusted position in the entire kingdom. And he's a Jewish captive for crying out loud, born into captivity. He's a slave and yet he's bold. And now he's been praying, and you'll see in verse, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 2 that he's been praying now for four months. It's now the month of Nisan, which was four months after Kislev. And so it's about mid-March to mid-April, and they're hanging out once again. He's already tested the wine for the king, and he's given it to him, and they're in the throne room, and they have this conversation. The king says to me in verse 2, why is your face so sad? If you're not sick, then it must be something, a sorrow of your heart. And Nehemiah suddenly is terrified. He says, I became dreadfully afraid because the role of anybody in the court of the king was to keep the king happy. You don't walk into the throne room all sad and discontent. It could be your head, honestly. The role of your job is to keep the king happy at all times. And here he is, obviously distraught about something. And so the king says, what's wrong? And so he gets afraid because he's like, well, this is my chance. I've been praying about this now for four months. 
I gotta take this opportunity. So he's afraid. He says to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And then the king said to me, what do you request? Wow. Can you imagine hearing a king say that? By the way, we do have a king say that. In Philippians 4, 6, 7, the Bible says, with all supplication, make your prayers known to God. Make your requests known to God. Here's a king inviting Nehemiah to make requests to him, and yet we have the king of kings that makes requests that tells us you can make any requests you know. Seek ye first, and all these things will be added unto you. That's just a little side note. Wasn't what I had in here, but I just wanted to share that. So the king says, what do you request? And then Nehemiah throws up this what I call a little popcorn prayer. He says, oh man, this is my chance. Oh God, help me. You ever do that? I do these little popcorn prayers all day long. I did it right before I came out on stage today because Lord, help me as I've studied eight months of material and I'm gonna try to do it in 18 minutes. All right, here we go. So he throws up this prayer and he says to the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, check this out, with the queen sitting beside him. Who's the queen? Well, her name is Demaspia, but there was another queen who was probably in the palace. Guess whose mother or stepmom was the stepmom of Artaxerxes the king? Esther. And the, there's a really good chance Esther's still alive at this point, which means she's probably still living somewhere in the palace, and there's a really good chance, who knows, that she's even in the room. And so perhaps as a favor to his beloved stepmom Esther, Artaxerxes now grants Nehemiah this position or this, uh, or, or this uh, opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. And so we ask him how long his journey will be, when he's going to return. And listen, this is no easy thing for the king. He's losing his right-hand man. Who's going to taste the food now? Got to find a new guy, right? So this is not an easy loss for the king but he grants them this permission. So we have the boldness of Nehemiah. We have the brokenness of Nehemiah, but we also have the vision of Nehemiah. And so he begins in verse seven of chapter two to just give the king a list. Man, he is ready. It's kind of like when you ask your kids, what do you want for Christmas? And they go, well, I just happen to have a list right here. And they throw out, you know, it's kind of what happened here. He's like, okay, the door's open. I'm gonna tell you everything I need. I need letters for this. I need letters for this. I need, to, I need you to make me the king of, uh, or the governor of Judah. I need all this stuff. And he lives this, gives him this list, the king grants it all. And here's the funniest part to me about the whole thing. Nehemiah has no experience whatsoever in how to build a wall. Never done it. But listen, God doesn't always call the equipped, but God always equips the called. And this is what happened to Nehemiah. So just as a reminder, you may not feel adequate for the task that you, or, or that you have enough education or that you have enough experience to do what you feel like God's wanting you to do, but sometimes you just gotta step out and start walking. Dr. Falwell had never built a university, y'all, but he just stepped out and did it. Sometimes you just gotta get out of the boat, and that's exactly what Peter did when Jesus called him. He said, just come on out. Well, has anybody ever walked on water before, Peter? No. Has anybody ever walked on water since Peter? No. He has the distinction of being the only human being to ever walk on water, but it took getting out of the boat to do it. Sometimes you just gotta start climbing. You just gotta start walking. The Cake Boss is one of my favorite shows. I like to watch that show. And I watched a documentary on this guy one time, and I'm fascinated how they make these cakes, because I can't even make 
Pop-Tarts for crying out loud in the microwave. But he, he makes these cakes and they're incredible cakes. And he, and he said, you know, one time I was asking my dad when I was trying to get my career started, how do you start a career? And his dad said, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, I, I, I want to have this massive cake company. And his dad said, okay, well, let's start here. Make a cake and sell it. He said, yeah, yeah, okay, I got that, Dad. But I mean, seriously, how, how do I really build a company? His dad said, oh, okay, well, after you sell that first one, make another cake and sell it. He's like, are you kidding me? He said, yeah, that's how you do it. You just start walking. And you're going to fail along the way. Thomas Edison tried 2,000 different experiments before he discovered the right conducting thread for the creation of the light bulb. And when a reporter asked him what it feels like to fail 2,000 times, you know what Thomas Edison said? He said, I never failed once. It just so happens that inventing the light bulb is a 2,000-step process. <laughs> I love that. Babe Ruth set the record for the most home runs, but he also set the record for the most strikeouts. You see, you can't be afraid of failure, folks. Failure is not what we should be afraid of. Perhaps our greatest fear should be in succeeding at things that don't matter. So here's Nehemiah. He's got no reservations, no reserves. He's got to go back, and he does. Chapter 2 is about that going back. It's an 1,100-mile journey all the way back from Susa to Jerusalem. He gets there. He gets up late at night one night, rides around the city by himself, sees the condition of the walls, comes up with a vision on how to fix the walls, and then gets the nobles and the officials together. They meet. They say, yes, this is a great idea, and so they just start building and it's amazing to see what happens. And let me ask you again, what's the vision for your life? Where can God use you right now? You gotta start where you are. Start doing what you can with what you have. And if God's broken you over a need or a situation or he's calling you to a particular area, especially in ministry, then pay close attention to that. It could very well be that he wants you to do something about it. So if God's given you a vision for your life, then pay close attention to what that is and let me give you four steps on how to handle that. If he hasn't given you a vision for your life, ask him to. I promise he wants to. So here's a few little things that we can do to accomplish a God-given vision. First of all, stop, fast, pray, and work and do it in that order, just like Nehemiah. Stop, fast, pray, and then work. Pray like it depends on God. Work like it depends on you. Secondly, get ready for opposition because it's going to come. Anytime you're trying to do something for God, Satan hates it. He will do anything and everything to bring you opposition. And that's what happens to poor Nehemiah. I mean, he runs into these guys like Sanballat, another guy named uh, Tobiah, another guy named Geshem. And these guys give him fits for the next 10 chapters. It's unbelievable. He runs into everything from ridicule to plots of war to discouragement among his own people uh, to fear, selfishness, compromise, slander, threats, intrigue, you name it. It's all there. And somehow, someway, even even in the midst of all this adversity, Nehemiah is able to direct the building of that wall in just 52 days. No reserves, no retreats. So how did he handle all this? Let me give you a third thing. God-given vision cannot be accomplished alone. 
Each person had their own job to do. And it's amazing when you read chapter 3 because chapter 3 just goes in counterclockwise, north, west, south, and east, all the way around the wall of the city. And that Bible will tell you that every family, every group that had something to do with building that wall. And here's the coolest thing. None of them had to go far. It was all right there in front of them. They were rebuilding the portion of the wall that was right in front of their homes. And the material was all right there. The walls were in shambles, but the material was still on the ground. I mean, what a great picture for us in our own neighborhoods, huh? Some of us live lives in our neighborhoods, and we see the people around us, and their lives are in shambles. So why not ask God to give you a vision to reach your neighborhood for Christ and then just get a little creative in coming up with a plan to do it? The material's all there. Just ask God to help you. And then Nehemiah 4, verse 6, he says this, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. So they're halfway done now because the people had a mind to work. What a great phrase. You know, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you have unity of purpose and nobody cares who gets the credit. Hmm. You can't do this alone. But fourthly, you got to stay focused on the task at hand. Nehemiah verses. 8 and 9 in chapter 4 says this, all of them conspired to come and attack Jerusalem. He's talking about all these guys, you know, like, uh, like I mentioned before, Sam Ballad and Tobiah and all these guys. They're coming against him with all these attacks, all this ridicule, all these words that are painful and that they're actually bringing fear to the hearts of the Jewish people that were trying to rebuild the wall. But in the process, Nehemiah continues to pray and he continues to depend on God and he asks the Lord to handle it and he continues to work like it depends on him and he's got a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other. So he sets half the people to protect them and half the people to work and somehow, some way, they're able to accomplish this goal. Nehemiah trusted and he prayed, but he was also ready for battle. See, folks, we're in a super spiritual battle today. I mean, we're in a supernatural battle. We need to remember the battle belongs to the Lord and the battle begins on our knees before the Lord. So trouble is sure to come. But folks, if you stay focused on the task that God has given you, he will bless it and he will be with you. And I can't think of a better picture of this than Jesus Christ himself when he was so focused on enduring the cross on climbing that hill of Golgotha and suffering the, 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 the nails and, and shedding his blood for you and me. Folks, nothing could deter him from that one purpose, to fulfill the will of his Father, to seek and to save those who were lost. And did he deal with opposition? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I gave you a list of nine things a minute ago, but listen, he was rejected. He was despised. Uh, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah says. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. That was Jesus. And it just goes to show that one thing's for sure, when God wants it, he will make it happen. Sometimes he uses a red sea to split wide open. Sometimes he speaks through a donkey like we've already read. Sometimes he sends an angel. Sometimes he shuts the mouths of lions and Daniel that you're about to read in a few weeks. And sometimes he allows, well, one time, allowed his only begotten son to die on a cross so that you and I might have life and have it more abundantly and have it eternal because his plan and his purpose was for you and me to know him, to fellowship with him. And he had to use the death of his own son for that to happen. That's why when Nehemiah and Ezra finished building the walls, it called for a time of celebration. 
because God's people had consecrated themselves towards him. And the one thing that God really wants is unbroken fellowship with him. And the only way you can have unbroken fellowship with the Lord is to consecrate yourself before him, surrender your life to him, and live for him. And if you're here this morning and you've never met Christ or you're watching my TV or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, let me tell you something. There is no other way to have hope in your life than through him. He went to the cross and suffered and bled and died for you. So surrender your life to him. Give your life to him and he will give you life more abundant, a freedom that you never thought you could even have. And he'll feel this emptiness in your soul that you never thought could be filled. Only Jesus can do that. So if you're watching this morning, if you're here this morning, and you're seeking hope in your life, give your heart to Jesus. He will save you. So no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. You know, there was another guy that lived like that in the 1800s. Well, he was born in the 1700s. He gave his life to Christ in 1785. And he was trying to determine whether or not he was called to ministry or what he was going to do. Eventually, he decides to stay in government at the prodding of his friends, William Pitt, and another guy named John Newton, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. And in the process of him just growing closer to the Lord, this man, William Wilberforce, became completely burdened and overwhelmed at the issue of slavery. He said, let the consequences be what they would. I would from this time determine that I would never rest until I had effected the abolition of slavery, no reserves. In 1793, he presented a bill in the House of Commons for the gradual abolition of slavery, <coughs> and it failed. But slowly but surely, the tide began to turn because he would never let up. For 14 years in a row, William Wilberforce continued to put a bill before the House of Commons to abolish slavery. And after 14 years of debating and speech after speech, conversation after conversation, suddenly the tide turns. And the House of Commons voted on February 23rd, 1807, for the abolition of slavery by a vote of 283 to 16. From there, William Wilberforce spent the next 25 years of his life in lobbying other governments and, and, and trying to abolish slavery in its entirety. And three days before his death in 1833, he heard that the House of Commons had passed a law emancipating all the slaves in the British Empire. Never underestimate what God can do through one fully committed person. And William Wilberforce said this, and it really struck me. He said this, let it not be said that I was silent when they needed me. <laughs> Folks, again, we need not fear failure. What should terrify us is to get to the end of our lives having succeeded in all kinds of things that don't really matter. So stop, fast, and pray. Get ready to face opposition. Remember you're not doing this alone and stay focused on the task at hand. Let me close with this. My favorite moment in the entire book of, of Nehemiah happens in chapter 6. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem are all standing around and they're giving him a hard time about this thing and they're, they're seeing the success, they're seeing the wall being built now and they're realizing that their little, their little place of power is under threat. They realize now that, man, we're, we're, we're going to have an issue. So they, they, they try to call a meeting with Nehemiah. They said in, in chapter uh, 6, verse 2, hey, let's meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. I like that. 
<laughs> but Nehemiah says, uh, tell him this, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Here's a little principle for you. When your enemies want to meet you in the valley called Ono, here's your answer. That's right. That's right. You got it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Reminds me of a moment in Mark chapter 15 when the passerbys at the cross are yelling at Jesus and they said these words, come on down and save yourself. Come down from the cross. But Jesus would not come down even though he could have. He was too focused on the task at hand. He was doing a great work. Oh, no. He would not come off that cross because it had to die for the sins of all mankind. Oh, no. He would not come down from that cross because he had to go to the grave and defeat the adversary, Satan, once and for all. Oh, no. He would not come down off that cross because he must die there. But hold on, because on the third day he would rise up, defeating the grave, defeating hell, and defeating death itself. So listen to me, Thomas Road Church, and even those of you from Liberty University. We can rest in victory today knowing that God has given us a vision to change the world. We are doing a great work. And you can go forward in confidence that he goes before us. He will protect us. He will guide us. And so you can tell all the naysayers, oh, no, we don't have time to get caught in the negativity of your news reports. Oh, no, we don't have time to argue with you about worthless things on social media. Oh, no, we don't have time to be afraid of what may or may not happen. Oh, no, we don't have time to get discouraged or defeated, for we're doing a great work. We're building a kingdom of God. And if not you, then who? If not now, then when? God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And it starts with the broken down walls right in front of your own home. It's time to go to work, church. It's time to grab a shovel in one hand that represents our love and our service to others and keep the sword of the Spirit in the other hand. That's the Word of God. It is time to love God passionately and to love people with the same amount of passion. And together, we will build the kingdom of God. May the vision God has given us end in victory and bring glory to his holy name. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we love you. We surrender ourselves to you. And in this moment, God, we just want to ask you again, to open the eyes of our heart, speak to us. Is there something you want us to do? Oh God, if there is, I pray that you'd break us like you broke Nehemiah, that you give boldness to us like you gave to him, and that God, we would know that we're not doing this alone, but there's a task at hand that has to be done. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just stand together? And I'm gonna ask the band if we could, could we just start at that bridge, Scott? I will build my life. And we'll just sing it through one time because the hour's getting late. But as we do, I'm going to tell you that the altar's open here. And if you've never met Christ, come to the altar. Surrender your life to him. And for those of you who do know him, but God's calling you to something and you're not sure what it is, maybe you just need to come and pray. And for those of you in this room who are broken over the condition of our country, maybe it's time we just weep a little bit and ask God to use you and me to bring change to an incredibly lost world. We see it every day. So as we sing, I'm just gonna ask you to come, ask God to speak to you, and then as we leave, ask God to use you. Go ahead, Scott. And I 
like that phrase right there, don't you? I will not be shaken. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Live your life for him this week. God bless you as you go. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask Him to save you today. Now, if you'd like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we'd love to chat with you about that information. I would encourage you to email me at the address that is on the screen. It's pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. If you'd also like to help contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love. Help us let people know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, and that we can find hope in Jesus.